When something happens to your car, you might say, But what you really need to say is something that can actually help. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, State Farm is there to help you file your claim right on the State Farm mobile app. So just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Voy a ponerme la vacuna Prevnar 20 porque estoy en riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. La cual pudiera llevarme al hospital. Así que preguntaré sobre Prevnar 20. 65 años o más, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20. Vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente. Una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar20enespañol.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar 20. Hello, beautiful humans. Want to be a part of a community where empathy is at the forefront? Want to go beyond the surface level of true crime? Want to understand our role as consumers of true crime? Join me, Shay Vishna, on True Compass Podcast, where cultivating ethics and awareness is at the forefront. My goal is to empower you with the knowledge to be an ethical consumer of true crime, while also getting to learn how those affected by crime are impacted. But I don't stop there. I'll also have amazing guests to discuss these topics and even throw in some safety tips here and there. Can't wait for y'all to tag along with me on this journey. Be sure to follow True Compass wherever you get your podcast. Hey there, true crime enthusiast. I'm beyond excited to share some thrilling news with you. I'm Lainey Hobbs, and I've been handpicked to be the voice behind the brand new podcast, Tracing Darkness, proudly brought to you by ACAST. Picture this, a podcast that unravels mysterious and compelling true crime cases, and you've got a front row seat to the action. Tracing Darkness is your passport into the heart of real-life mysteries, and I can't wait to guide you through the twists and turns of each gripping story. Here's where you come in. The podcast is officially live and available wherever you usually get your podcast fix. So if you're into spine-tingling tales and love a good mystery, this podcast is tailor-made just for you. Your support means the world to me, and I'd be honored if you take a moment to listen, subscribe, and maybe even drop a five-star review if you're feeling generous. Your feedback keeps the momentum going and ensures that I can continue sharing these compelling and mysterious true crime cases with you. So, what are you waiting for? Join me on this exciting journey into the shadows with Tracing Darkness. Let's uncover the secrets together. Explicit content is found in this episode. So, listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to True Crime Cases. I'm your host, Lainey. Parenting is a journey fraught with anxiety. It's not just the typical concerns of new parents, the fretting over whether we're doing it right, the fear of accidental slips, or the worry that our children might grow up to resent us. As they age, new worries emerge, academic performance, friendships, and the dreaded yet beautiful teenage years, where we grapple with the unknowns of their involvement in risky behaviors. 
Yet no matter the age, they remain our babies. The primal instinct to ensure their well-being persists. However, as time marches forward, so do the reasons to worry. The news, a constant barrage of unsettling stories, reveals children ensnared in predatory relationships, violated in places presumed safe, churches, extracurriculars, schools. The once innocent halls of education now echo with the grim possibility of school shootings, a haunting specter in our daily lives. With each passing day, trepidation intensifies as our children step beyond the sanctuary of home. The question lingers, who can we trust with our precious ones? Would you entrust a family friend with babysitting duties? Could another family member take them out for the day? The unease extends to sleepovers, challenging our perception of safety. Amid the dwindling pool of trustworthy individuals, teachers stand out. They form a dwindling bastion of reliability entrusted with the safety and well-being of our children. The role demands prioritizing health and well-being over education. This is the essence of their often undervalued profession, and stringent vetting processes underscore the profound trust parents invest in these educational institutions. Regrettably, in the cases unfolding today, two educators betrayed that trust. In the stories we delve into, the actions of two teachers proved vile, resulting in the tragic murders of two promising young lives, Sayano Horimoto, a Japanese girl, and Debbie Gamma, an American teenager. In this episode, we explore the heart-wrenching narratives of these two beloved children, delving into the sorrowful events that cut short their futures. Okay, on to the show. Details about Sayano Horimoto's brief life are scarce, possibly due to the passage of time since her tragic murder, or the limited availability of English-language articles on the case. However, the significance of her story calls for broader awareness, and I'll do my utmost to shed light on the available information. Born in 1993, Sayano shared a close bond with her parents. While her mother's identity remains undisclosed in the available articles, her father, Sunede, was a known figure in her life. Their residence was in the Uji area of Kyoto Prefecture, and Sayano was enrolled at Shinmai Elementary School. Now, I want to acknowledge that my pronunciations might not be spot on, and apologies for that. Please don't send me any emails. I know, I'm doing my best. Now, back to Sayano. Her parents, driven to provide the best start for their daughter, took a significant step in March of 2005. At the age of 12, Sayano began attending a cram school known as Juku in Japan. These private institutions offer additional support and training to students, aiding them in intense preparation for crucial exams. Typically held outside regular school hours, these schools demand fees for attendance. Sayano's goal was to ace the entrance exam for a reputable junior high school, scheduled for early December that same year. Her parents' aspirations motivated her hard work, but she genuinely enjoyed learning and finding contentment in her education, despite the added hours of education. However, a disconcerting situation arose just two months into her time at the cram school. 
Yu Hajino, a 23-year-old part-time tutor at the cram school, instructed the sixth-grade class Sayano attended for Japanese language lessons. On May 11, 2005, Hajino detained Sayano for an unusually lengthy period, approximately an hour and 20 minutes, under the guise of either private tutoring or counseling. Irrespective of the intended purpose, the session took an unsettling turn. Hajino bombarded the young girl with a barrage of questions. How did she feel about school? The Juku and his classes? What was her family life like? Sayano responded honestly and expressed her enjoyment of both schools and her deep love for her father. Hajino responded by calling her a liar, claiming that he knew she wasn't telling the truth because he was studying psychology, which taught him what lying looked like. Sayano was understandably distressed by this interaction and his accusations at her. Her mother came to pick her up from school that day, and as soon as Sayano saw her, she burst into tears. Her parents were able to coax what was wrong out of Sayano and immediately called the school to complain about Hajino's inappropriate behavior. At first, not much was done, but Sayano's parents did not give up and kept calling in complaints on behalf of their daughter. By the end of November, the principal elected to remove Sayano from Hajino's classes and even arranged for Sayano's class to have a different exam proctor for her junior high entrance exam. According to one source, on November 21st, Sayano approached Hajino to tell him personally that she would no longer be attending his classes. In response, he brought her into the school staff room and again bombarded her with questions, demanding she tell him why she was leaving his class. It isn't clear what she told him, but he would later accuse her of mocking him or being rude to him on more than one occasion, so no matter what she said, he probably would have taken issue with it. Sayano wasn't the only girl Hajino was harassing, either. The rumor among others at the school was that he was a lolicon, someone who enjoys media where young girls are displayed sexually or romantically. He took great interest in the style and fashion of his female students. According to some reports, he acted suggestively towards some of his female students, too, going so far as to touch their bodies and hold their hands during conversations something that led him to having a reputation for being creepy and a bit weird among his students. None of the students or staff members at the school knew that this teacher was more than a little odd. Hajino had a history of violence and criminal activity that went back as far as his own childhood. He would get into fights at elementary school, and his mother would always blame the other children and make them apologize, no matter how much her son was guilty. It's possible that she did not truly believe Hajino was the victim and just wanted her son to retain a good reputation to get far in education. A good education was Hajino's primary goal in life. Apparently, while he was a child, his friends weren't allowed to visit him so that he could study without interference. He wasn't allowed to eat snacks of any kind. And if he misbehaved, he would be locked in the bathroom for hours as punishment. Hajino's behavior escalated once he got into Doshisha University to study law, specifically with an interest in crime and psychology. He continued living at home at this time and was often violent to his mother. On at least one occasion, he harmed her so badly that she was taken away in an ambulance. In his third year at the university in June 2003, he stole a student's wallet from the campus library and attempted to flee the scene. As he fled, 
Hagino got into a physical altercation with the library security guard and left the other man injured. He was caught and suspended from the university for a year and a half for this and was given a suspended prison sentence for injuring the security guard. Following these events, in the autumn of 2003, Hagino also spent time in a psychiatric facility and began to take the antidepressant fluvoxamine. It isn't clear what transpired during his time there, but whatever improvements he may have experienced were short-lived. Reports indicate that once he left the hospital, his mental health and behavior became erratic and ultimately dangerous once more. Only months later, he was hired to work as an instructor at the cram school, who remained completely oblivious to his criminal record. Two years into his employment with the school, he would become enraged at 12-year-old Seiyano Horimoto for what he considered to be her disrespectful behavior towards him. Hajino believed that it was the child's fault he was removed as a proctor on the test that took place on December 1st. He could not seem to understand that the principal had barred him from participating as a result of his own actions. In Hajino's mind, it had to be Sayano's fault. On December 2nd, only days after Sayano had told Hajino she wasn't taking his classes anymore, he went out to the store and bought two kitchen knives and a hammer. Hajino wrapped all three weapons in a towel to conceal them in his bag and took them with him to school the next day. It seems likely that Hajino had intended to attack Sayano on December 3rd. This is because there were fewer adults present, as regular classes weren't happening. It was an exam day for the sixth grade, and nowhere near the usual number of teachers were needed on the premises. However, apparently, he had misjudged the opportunity. Sayano didn't show up for the exam that day, possibly because she had already taken the test at an earlier date without his knowledge. But... There was one test that Sayano could not miss out on, the junior high school entrance exam, which she had been preparing for since joining the school earlier that year, took place on Saturday, December 10th. And although the principal had also prevented Hajino from proctoring this exam, the location and time of the test had not changed. Therefore, Hajino knew exactly where Sayano was going to be and when. Before the children arrived that Saturday morning, Hajino disconnected the security camera that covered the classroom. Sayano and her 12 classmates arrived to take their exam, which was scheduled to begin at 9 a.m. Then, Hajino informed the exam instructor that he was carrying out some form of questionnaire or survey about the testing process. Although this was not normal procedure in the school, the instructor took 12 of the children to another room, leaving only one girl behind with Hajino. Sayano waited patiently at her desk to answer Hajino's questions, anxious to join the other students so she could take her exam. As she sat there, Hajino locked the classroom door, then took the hammer and knives from his bag. He approached Sayano from behind and hit her over the head with the hammer. Sayano recoiled and tried to flee, running to the back of the classroom, but Hajino pursued and proceeded to stab her. She suffered over 10 stab wounds to the face and neck before falling to the ground, but still, Hajino continued to attack. This assault was over in mere minutes. At 9.02 a.m., Hajino called 110, the Japanese number for the police, and made a report that he had stabbed a student. Around the same time, he called his own father to tell him what he had done. By the time officers arrived at the scene, staff at the school's office were still completely unaware of the incident, 
as was everyone else in the building. Despite this, the officers searched the building, and eventually they found the classroom that contained Hajino and Sayano. The door was locked, but Hajino willingly opened it for them, still speaking to his father on the phone as he did. Tragically, Sayano was so deeply injured that she was already in cardiac arrest by the time her would-be rescuers arrived. Although she was still clutching onto her young life while en route to the hospital, she was pronounced dead soon after arrival. Hajino reportedly told police that he had attacked Sayano during some kind of argument that took place. He claimed she mocked him, called him something rude, and told him to go away. He said he and the girl had never gotten along, but because of this final slight, he had finally lost his temper. The story changed over time, though, and the motives for the attack transformed as it did. Most notably, Hajino would later inform his defense lawyer that he had actually been suffering hallucinations in the days leading up to Sayano's murder. In these hallucinations, he claimed that Sayano had attacked him with a sword and overpowered him, and because of that, when he attacked her, he believed he had been acting in self-defense. If you're not convinced by either version of that story, you're not alone. When the case went to trial in February 2006, both the police and the prosecution pointed out the elements of Agino's actions that indicated the murder was premeditated. Firstly, buying the weapons, concealing them, and bringing them to school could only have one clear explanation, an intent to cause harm at the very least. If not to Sayano, then to someone. Secondly, coming to the school on a day he was not scheduled to be there, with the prepared explanation of the questionnaire, solely so that he could single Sayano out and get her alone. And thirdly, disconnecting the security camera so that he would not be interrupted in his assault. The defense's main argument was diminished capacity, citing Hajino's history of mental illness, including his claims of hallucinations and delusions, as well as his previous stay in a psychiatric hospital. They claimed that his altered mental state meant that Hajino could not tell right from wrong, at the time he attacked Sayano, and therefore he should not be held responsible for his actions. The judge, Makoto Himoro, was not at all convinced by the defense's story and ultimately sided with the prosecution. He dismissed the argument of mental incompetence and agreed that Hajino's actions were premeditated based on the facts provided. He went on to add that the cruelty of the crime was beyond comprehension. It was a horrendous act of violence to commit against anyone, never mind an innocent 12-year-old girl. Not to mention that on top of that, she was somewhere she should have been safe, a student, at school, with a teacher. The judge did, however, take into consideration the fact that Hajino had called the police himself immediately after the attack and had not made any attempts to escape, resist arrest, or conceal his involvement. Hajino also expressed remorse, telling the court, I want to apologize to the girl and her parents from whom I took away the precious life of their child, and said that he would atone for the crime for the rest of my life. After deliberation on March 6, 2007, Yu Hajino was sentenced to 18 years in prison for the murder of Sayano Horimoto, only six years longer than the life he had taken. The prosecution appealed the sentence as being far too short for the damage he had done, but in 2009, Hajino's sentence was actually reduced by the Osaka High Court. 
The defense had also made an appeal which asked for a lighter sentence due to Hagino's state of diminished capacity. The high court sided with this opinion and reduced the prison term to a period of 15 years in March of 2009. This was understandably a devastating result for Sayano's family. Her father, Sunede Horimoto, told the press that the sentence was much, much too light. And I can't help but agree. I'm not super familiar with the Japanese justice system, but only receiving 15 years in prison for murdering a 12-year-old girl who was entrusted into your care by her parents and the education system just doesn't sit right with me. In 2010, Sayano's parents sued the school for breaching its duty of safety by failing to protect their students. The suit demanded 130 million yen in damages, which converts to just over 960,000 U.S. dollars in today's money. The school was subsequently ordered to pay damages of approximately 98 million yen, or just under 726,000 U.S. dollars. Sayano's death triggered a wave of reform in the cram school industry. The reforms included tightening classroom safety and improving the methods with which they screened potential teaching staff. Educators and administrators aimed to make the children studying with them safer and hopefully prevent something this tragic from happening again. The loss of Sayano was also felt across Japan as a whole, as she was the latest in a string of unrelated child murders that had been devastating families nationwide. Less than a month before Sayano's murder, two other girls were murdered on their way home from school. Both girls were only seven years old, murdered in totally unrelated incidents. Before them, several other children had been killed by family members and strangers over the course of the year, leading many parents and families into a state of panic. Psychologist Aya Matsumoto said cultural change likely had something to do with this. Japan is a reasonably safe country, and youngsters have not been taught to question or doubt a stranger's intentions. Kids here are told to respect their elders and are too trusting of adults. But it is a myth that Japan is a safe place today. They pick on children because they are easy targets. In regards to the cases where it was a family member who took the life of a young child, experts believe the isolation of modern society and the rising cost of living had a heavy part to play. Japanese culture had always had larger families and loving communities, where it takes a village to raise a child was a saying that was adhered to, and any adult on the street would gladly and kindly help a young person in need. But rising costs of living, urban environments, and mounting stresses, contributing to desperation and mental illnesses in adults, had slowly torn this long-established safety net to shreds. One system parents began to put into place following these events was organizing bicycle patrols around schools and along the routes children walked to and from their homes. They also began accompanying their children whenever they left the house and no longer allowed them to be outside unsupervised. But in the case of Sayano, none of these things could have saved her from a teacher intent on killing. I don't have any solutions to these issues, although I dearly wish I did. All I can say is I hope that the families of Sayano Horimoto and all of the others affected by this wave of tragedy have been able to heal and are able to take some comfort from the memories of their beloved children now that they have been so cruelly taken from them.
We spend 90% of our lives indoors in our modern world. But here's something to ponder. The air we breathe inside can be two to five times more polluted than the air outdoors. In fact, it's a startling 100 times worse in some cases. Let's take a moment to consider the implications. The 2020 census report shows that almost 165 million people live amidst unhealthy air conditions. And the World Health Organization gently reminds us that 9 out of 10 people breathe air that surpasses pollution limits, leading to 7 million untimely deaths globally every year. Amidst those concerns, there's a beacon of hope. Air Doctor. CNN, Money, and ABC have applauded this air purifier. Its ultra-HEPA filter diligently captures 99.99% of tested bacteria and viruses, offering a sanctuary for your lungs. The tender care doesn't stop there. Air Doctor gently clears particles as minuscule as 0.003 microns, embracing you in a clean embrace. Their Air Doctor 3000 model envelops spaces of over 630 square feet, delivering four refreshing air exchanges each hour. A hush of relief. Their Whisper Jet fans purr at 30% less noise than regular cleaners. And as a heartfelt gesture, Air Doctor presents a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit airdoctorpro.com with the promo code TCFC. Relish up to 39% off or up to $300 off depending on the model. Breathe easy, my friends. Head to airdoctorpro.com, A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use promo code TCFC. When something happens to your car, you might say, No! My car! But what you really need to say is something that can actually help. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Just like that, State Farm is there to help you file your claim right on the State Farm mobile app. So, just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So, I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Our next case takes us back to 1975 and to a family in Erie, Pennsylvania. Deborah Lynn Ferguson, lovingly known as Debbie, entered the world in 1959 to parents Betty and Dick Gamma, marking the beginning of a family that would eventually include five children. Among the siblings, Debbie was the firstborn, a fact that Betty, her mother, believed transformed her life profoundly. According to Betty, her true journey commenced when she embraced motherhood, forever changed by the arrival of Debbie. The mother-daughter bond between Debbie and Betty was exceptionally strong, a connection characterized by mutual pride and admiration. A source of shared joy for both was Debbie's passion for twirling, a sport that blends baton spinning with a dance gymnastics routine, usually set to music. The duo's excitement reached new heights when Debbie became a double twirler, a feat requiring heightened skill compared to single baton twirling. Deborah's closest companion, Robin, shared her enthusiasm for twirling, and the two were often described as inseparable, practically joined at the hip. 
At 16, Debbie was your typical teenager, navigating the halls of eerie strong Vincent High School with a pension for English class. Her days were filled with the vibrancy of a flourishing social life, spent in the company of close friends and a devoted boyfriend. Despite her parents' divorce, the family maintained an amicable facade, seemingly on good terms. Debbie and her siblings also formed a harmonious relationship with her mother's new partner, Norm Ferguson. Naturally, like any teenager, Debbie experienced occasional squabbles with friends, siblings, and parents. Yet these disputes were transient, and overall she was a content and robust teenager, embracing life to the fullest. However, the afternoon of Thursday, August 7, 1975, painted a completely different picture. Debbie found herself in a disagreement with her mother, Betty. Tasked with doing laundry, she yearned to join her friend Robin for a shopping excursion. Betty granted permission, but under the condition that the laundry was completed first. Though not thrilled, Debbie complied. Eventually, she finished the chores and left the family home, presumably heading to meet Robin as originally planned. Multiple reports described her departure as a storming out, indicating her clear expression of displeasure at being momentarily held back. As days passed without Debbie's return, Betty initially assumed her daughter was still upset and spending time with friends. However, annoyance crept in when the weekend arrived and Debbie had yet to come home. The situation escalated when Betty, expecting Debbie to clean her room for a house viewing, found herself doing the task instead. Betty speculated that Debbie was at the beach, intentionally avoiding her. That night, Betty thought she heard Debbie sneaking in, preparing to scold her the next morning. However, to Betty's dismay, Debbie's bed showed no signs of use. The following Saturday, the family planned to visit a local park, and Debbie was aware of this. Yet she didn't return that morning, causing the family to cancel the outing. Concern deepened as Debbie's absence persisted. It was unlike her to disappoint her siblings over a spat with a parent. Compounding the worry was a friend's call, inquiring about Debbie's whereabouts when they assumed she had been with that friend. Her family grew increasingly anxious by Sunday with no sign of Debbie. Multiple friends visited, also searching for her, but no one had heard from her. Amid mounting worry, Debbie's grandmother reached out to the police to report her missing, with the report possibly filed as early as that Friday. Unwilling to rely solely on the authorities, Norm, Debbie's stepfather, and her friends joined in the search. Betty, in a state of anxiety, remained at home, glued to the phone, desperate for any news of her daughter. One slight timeline discrepancy arose when Betty claimed to have seen Debbie in bed on Thursday night around midnight, conflicting with most other accounts placing Debbie on a downtown Erie street corner with friends earlier that evening. Regardless of this discrepancy, after that Thursday night, no one saw Debbie alive again. The distressing news came on Monday at 9 a.m. when a body was discovered in Casawago Creek, Crawford County, about 40 miles south of Erie. A warning reached Debbie's parents, advising them not to look at the newspapers. The family, grappling with disbelief, clung to a fleeting hope when the clothing description didn't seem to match what Debbie had last worn. Yet on Wednesday, a friend called the hospital seeking information to rule out the body as Debbie's. The only unusual detail released 
was that the girl had no cavities, a detail eerily mirroring Debbie's dental history. Norm was invited to the police station to look at the victim's clothing, hoping against hope that he wouldn't be able to identify Debbie. Instead, he returned home with the news they had been dreading, devastating the entire family. The body in the creek was 16-year-old Debbie Gamma. Her body had been found in a horrific state, floating face-up underneath a bush in the creek. Her remains were already partially decomposed, likely due to the humid climate and location she had been left in. Her hands and feet were bound with copper wire, and more wire was deeply wound around her neck, so deeply that it was described as embedded. An autopsy was carried out and ruled that her death was caused by acute asphyxiation due to ligature, indicating the wire had cut off her breathing. It also revealed that she had likely been drugged and sexually assaulted. As Erie police tirelessly combed the community for leads, the case of Debbie Gamma, a friendly, smart, and well-liked teenager, proved perplexing. It seemed inconceivable that anyone would want to harm her. Despite the initial efforts, leads grew scarce, eventually drying up. Months elapsed with no progress, prompting Betty's anxiety to mount. Seeking a breakthrough, she enlisted the help of a private investigator, although the specific details of this inquiry remain undisclosed to the public. One critical aspect the investigator pursued was the copper wire used to bind Debbie. Tracing its origin could potentially unveil the perpetrator. In a stroke of luck, the investigator uncovered a connection that defied expectations. A local supplier had recently fallen victim to a robbery, and among the stolen items were spools of copper wire. With one perpetrator already in custody, the private investigator's findings made the police question him. Not only did he implicate his partner in the crime, but he also directed the authorities to where the stolen wire was stored on the accomplice's property. Immediate testing confirmed that the stolen wire matched the exact type used to bind and kill Debbie Gamma. The man implicated in Debbie's death, now the prime suspect, was identified as Raymond Dale Payne. At the time of Debbie's murder, Payne was 37, but he was apprehended in September 1976 at the age of 38. In the intervening months, Payne had continued his life as an English teacher at Erie Strong Vincent High School. The familiarity of the name might strike a chord. Payne was one of Debbie Gamma's favorite teachers at the very school she attended. It didn't take long for Payne to buckle. He confessed to the police only days after his arrest on October 8th. In it, he detailed what had happened on the night Debbie died. According to court documents, Payne stated that he had been smoking pot and taking downers that night when he drove past Debbie, who was standing at the side of the road. He stopped to see if she wanted a ride, and when she climbed into his vehicle, he offered her a beer, which she accepted. He claimed he also offered her some of the pills he had been taking, and she accepted this offer as well. It isn't clear whether drinking and drugs were something Debbie did often, if at all. But if she did, it stands to reason that she would trust one of her favorite teachers to be a safe person to accept them from. Then the conversation progressed into troubling territory. Payne asked if Debbie would let him take photos of her, but not just any photos. He wanted her to pose for what he referred to as bondage pictures, though he insisted she was to remain fully clothed throughout, as though that makes a 30-year-old teacher asking his teenage student 
to pose for suggestive photos any less creepy and inappropriate. But again, according to Payne, she agreed to this. And let me just say, even if that was exactly how events went, it's pretty clear that a 16-year-old can't consent to an adult taking sexually suggestive photos of them, especially not one who is under the influence of marijuana, drugs, and alcohol, as Payne himself admitted. As the confession continues, Payne then went on to state that he drove them to the secluded Everett C. Hall Community Park. Once they arrived, they left the vehicle and he began to tie Debbie's arms and legs together. He then had her kneel down, tied one end of the wire to a tree, slipped it around Debbie's neck, and then tied the other end to another tree. Then he suddenly realized he left his camera in the truck. He left Debbie where she was, returned to his vehicle, and took his time smoking more pot and loading film into his camera. When he returned to Debbie, he claimed she had fallen forward in her bindings, and because she couldn't free herself, she had suffocated. Payne claimed he panicked at this point, freed Debbie's body from the wires, and put her in the truck. He drove her to his property and tried to conceal her body by dropping it into a pond, loaded down with cement blocks. However, when this proved ineffective, however, when this proved an ineffective disposal method, two days later, he moved her remains to where they were eventually found, in the creek. He outright refused the notion that he had sexually assaulted Debbie during this series of events, later even going so far as to ask for Debbie's body to be exhumed so that more tests could be done to prove this narrative. It didn't seem as though that request was ever granted. However, this isn't the only version of the tale that Payne told. For two months in early 1977, Payne's cellmate was a man named Anthony Lee Evans, and he testified that Payne had confided the truth to him. This version completely contradicted elements of the original confession. Evans said that Payne told him that he had sneakily crushed the pills into Debbie's beer, rather than her taking them knowingly and willingly. He went on to add that Payne bragged he had also bound Debbie against her will, then began to sexually assault her. When she screamed and begged for him to stop, Payne then intentionally strangled her with the wire, angry about being rejected and believing Debbie would report him to the police. This was, according to Evans, something Payne fantasized about. This was, according to Evans, something Payne fantasized about. He likes to tie women up and do crazy things to him, end quote. The difference between these two versions of events could have been the difference between manslaughter and first-degree murder, and that was what the court had to decide in 1977. Payne pleaded guilty to a general murder charge. This meant Payne admitted to being involved in the killing, but left it up to the court to decide what degree of murder he had committed. In August 1977, a panel of three judges found him guilty of first-degree murder with malicious intent and sentenced him to life in prison without the possibility of parole. But Payne was adamant that Debbie's death was an accident, and as such he should have been found guilty of third-degree murder, a finding which did not warrant the sentence of life imprisonment. He spent decades appealing his sentence to no avail and began requesting DNA testing as a part of this process in 1997. It wasn't until 2014 that his appeal succeeded, and DNA testing was carried out on evidence taken from Debbie's body. In a turn of events that can only be described as awful, 
These tests found that Payne's DNA did not match the DNA of whoever had sexually assaulted Debbie Gamma. A retrial was granted based on this new evidence, but it was eventually found that whether or not Payne had sexually assaulted Debbie was irrelevant to the murder charge. Payne was subsequently found guilty of first-degree murder once again. The DNA evidence didn't bring the liberation Payne hoped for, but what it did do was pose a haunting question. Did Payne have an accomplice in the murder? Were they the person who sexually assaulted Debbie? Was someone walking free all this time, knowing that they had helped to kill a 16-year-old girl and avoided facing any consequences? It doesn't look like we'll ever know. Payne, the only person who could have shed any light on this question, died of COVID-19 in prison in late 2020. Any secrets he kept regarding the murder of Debbie Gamma went with him to his grave. Debbie's mother, Betty Ferguson, hounded him for answers before he died, certain that an accomplice had been involved, but she never got him to tell her any information she didn't already know. Betty showed incredible strength following the death of her oldest child. Despite falling into alcohol dependence to cope with the trauma of losing Debbie, she eventually managed to escape that spiral. She volunteered for years at rape crisis centers, founded a local chapter of the Parents of Murdered Children organization, and also volunteered for a mediation program for victims of violent crime. In that last role, she encouraged victims to engage in forgiveness for the sake of their well-being. This was something she was able to encourage from her own experience. After a decade behind bars, Payne received a visit from his victim's mother. Betty, after much soul-searching, chose to forgive him for what he had done. She said that doing so set her free from some of the pain she had been harboring for ten long years and brought her peace. This gained Betty a lot of publicity and a lot of criticism. Many people from her support circle who had also lost loved ones to sexual assault and violence were disgusted and turned their backs on her for what they saw as a betrayal. Members of the public also couldn't understand how a mother could ever forgive her daughter's killer. But that didn't matter to Betty. She had found peace as only she could, and nobody should be judged for that. But her forgiveness did not mean she wanted him to be set free. Betty kept meticulous records on his case and was present at every court proceeding that followed his conviction. She made sure the man who hurt her little girl was never allowed so much as a glimpse of freedom, even as she set her own heart free. Betty Ferguson died in February of 2023 at the age of 80. Her youngest daughter, Will, was with her, and one of the last things she said to her mother was, Go dance with Debbie. As I conclude this episode, the journey through Sayano Horimoto's and Debbie Gamma's stories has been undeniably challenging. The intricacies of cases involving children tug at our emotions, reminding us of the fragility of innocence and the unforeseeable shadows that can cast darkness on young lives. In the case of Sayano, a young girl with dreams and aspirations, her life was tragically cut short by the sinister actions of one entrusted with her well-being. Debbie, a vibrant teenager with a passion for twirling and a promising future, met a fate none could have predicted. These heart-wrenching narratives compel us to reflect on the vulnerability of our loved ones. As parents, we strive to protect our children, but the harsh reality is that we can only do so much. The world holds unforeseen challenges, 
and despite our best efforts, we may find ourselves grappling with the unexplainable and the unjust. So, as I wrap up this episode, let's hold our loved ones close tonight. Cherish the moments, appreciate the laughter, and be present in their lives. Because in the face of life's uncertainties, the strength of our bonds becomes a beacon of solace. As we navigate the complexities of raising and caring for the next generation, let's acknowledge the limitations of our control. While we can impart wisdom, instill values, and create a nurturing environment, the harsh truth remains that we can only hope our children encounter no serious harm in this unpredictable journey called life. It's a somber thought, but it underscores the importance of treasuring each moment and expressing our love. For in that love lies a profound resilience that transcends the uncertainties that may unfold. Okay, listeners, thank you for joining me in this episode as we file away another true crime case. If you like our podcast, please review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It's a really big help. Follow us on social media. We're active on Twitter for now at true crime underscore cases, Facebook at facebook.com slash true crime cases W Laney and Instagram at true crime cases with Laney. Our website is truecrimecasespodcast.com and you can follow me on Instagram at Laney Hobbs BO or on TikTok at Laney Hobbs. And we'd love to hear your episode suggestions. Send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was researched, written, and edited by Jesse Hawk of the Inky Paw Print with content editing by Laney Hobbs. Audio engineering produced by the best in the business, Neeks at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or at the inkypawprint.com. <laughs>